in days like these, I think about this story. I thought about this story in the aftermath of September the 11th, 2001, when terrorists hijacked commercial planes, flew them into the Twin Towers of New York City, resulting in the death of nearly 3,000 individuals. I thought about this story in the days that followed April the 27th, 2011. It was on that infamous day that 62 tornadoes ripped and rumbled through the state of Alabama, leaving in its wake the death of 240 individuals. 3,000 other people were injured. More than 23,000 homes were destroyed or badly damaged. In these last several days, I have thought about this story. As we're trying to navigate the chaotic crisis of the coronavirus, in times when life is turned upside down, topsy-turvy, and we don't know exactly how to make it through, I think about this story. What is the story, you ask? It's the story that's tucked away in Luke chapter 8. Luke is not the only one to capture this story in his gospel telling. It's also told for us by Matthew and Mark. But this morning, I want us to pull up a chair and gather around this story found in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 8, I'll begin reading at verse 22. I'll conclude at verse 25. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided. All was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. In order for us to better understand this story, we need to know something about this lake and we need to know something about the disciples. If you and I could get on a plane and go to Israel today, we would discover that that lake is the Sea of Galilee. I realize that we call it a sea, but better still, it's an oversized lake. At its longest point, it's 13 miles long. At its broadest width, it's eight miles wide. If you and I stood on the water's edge, we would take note that the terrain surrounding the Sea of Galilee is made up of hills and mountains. It's not uncommon for wind to whip around those mountains, wreaking havoc on any sailing vessel on that body of water. It was here on the Sea of Galilee 
that the first century Palestinian fishing business boomed. On this given night, Jesus told his disciples, let's go across the Sea of Galilee. And as they were sailing, a squall sat down on them. Now, we understand the word squall to mean a severe storm, but even that phrase does not quite do justice to the word. The ancient Greek word is lelops. It's a word that describes a hurricane-type storm. So on this night, the rain was falling with such force that it felt like needles puncturing the skin. The wind was howling with such gusto that uh, it was slapping that wooden boat all over the Sea of Galilee. And the waves were so tall and so large that they nearly capsized the boat in which Jesus and the disciples were sailing. The Sea of Galilee was a place where severe storms could come, and on this night, it was a lelops. It was a storm of all storms. And the disciples, they were petrified. The thing we've got to remember about the disciples is that when you think that the disciples are, are scared out of their mind, at some level, that's surprising. And on the other hand, it's not all that shocking. What I mean is this, for some of those disciples, being in that predicament was something they'd never experienced before. Take Matthew, for example. He's an accountant for crying out loud. He had already calculated the probability that they were not going to survive and the odds were not in their favor. And take Thomas, for example. Thomas was probably huddled in a corner of the boat and he doubted that they would ever make it across. So on the one hand, it's not surprising that those disciples are petrified. But on the other hand, you've got disciples like Peter and Andrew, James and John, and they're in the boat. Now, these guys cut their teeth on the Sea of Galilee. They had a prominent fishing business when they were called by Jesus to come and follow him. In fact, Jesus came to the water's edge and he said to those guys, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They dropped their nets, got out of their boats, and they followed Jesus as Messiah. They've been following him for quite some time, but I suspect that fishing and sailing is kind of like riding a bike. You never forget how to do it. And so you would think that Peter and Andrew, James and John would offer words of comfort and and consolation, after all, a storm is an occupational hazard for a seasoned sailor. Oh, but on this night, none of the disciples are certain and confident. All the disciples are petrified and scared. They're all certain that this storm is going to do them in. Somebody asked the question, where's Jesus that's a pretty good question to ask when you're in the middle of a storm. When you're in a crisis, when you're in a predicament, when you've got a problem that you don't know how to handle, when you've got a situation that seems to be coming at you and, it, and you think to yourself, this is going to do me in, it's in that moment, it's a pretty good opportunity to ask the question, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus when the finances are falling apart? Where is Jesus when the marriage is crumbling, where is Jesus? When the doctor said that it's cancer, where is Jesus in the midst of coronavirus? When you find yourself in the midst of a storm, it's a very good opportunity to ask a great question, where is Jesus? The reply must have come, he's in the back of the boat. 
It is Mark who tells us that he was in the back of the boat, in the stern. He was asleep. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all say that Jesus was sleeping. It is Mark in his understanding and rendering that says that Jesus was asleep on a cushion. The word cushion means pillow. That pillow provides purpose. You see, Jesus intentionally went to sleep that night. It's not that he just drifted off to sleep on accident. No, he grabbed a pillow. He put his head down on that cushion and he fell asleep. Just like you, whenever you grab a pillow, it's some serious nap time. When you grab a pillow, you have the purpose of going to sleep. And Jesus was going to sleep that night. You ask the question, why is Jesus asleep in the midst of this storm? And the answer is because he was tired. We understand that Jesus is the God-man. And for many of us, it's not the godness of Jesus that we forget, but sometimes we fail to remember the manness of Jesus. We know that Jesus is God. We hear the stories that he fed the multitude with uh, five loaves of bread and two fish. He walked on water. He raised the dead. And we say, I believe it, I believe it, and I certainly believe it. Oh, but sometimes we fail to remember that Jesus, who is completely God, is also completely human. So when Jesus was hungry, his stomach growled. After Jesus had walked many miles, his muscles ached. After Jesus preached all day long, his voice must have been tired. When Jesus was fatigued, he went to sleep. All day long, Jesus had been preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. He gets into the boat with his disciples. They set sail, and Jesus goes to sleep. Friend, what do you do with a sleeping Jesus? You do just like the disciples. You wake him up. Somebody had the bright idea, wake up Jesus, let him know what's going on. And so they woke him up and they said, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to drown? Do you hear the indictment in their voice? Do you hear the accusation that they level against Jesus? Don't you care that we're about to drown? You couldn't care less about what's happening to me or to the other disciples in this very moment. You don't even care that we're about to drown. Friend, this, this indictment cuts at the, at the heart of the character of Christ. Jesus is a compassionate Savior. Jesus is a merciful Messiah. They are saying to Jesus, you couldn't care less. Oh, but the reality is that Jesus couldn't care more. Jesus cares about your suffering. He cares about your scenario. He knows that the rain is falling and the wind is howling and the waves are crashing. Not only does he know, but he cares he cares about who you are and how you are and where you are. He cares about what keeps you up at night. He cares about your fears and your failures. He cares about the sickness and the suffering that is surrounding you. Oh, my friend, Jesus is a compassionate Messiah, and he knows exactly the storm that you're experiencing, and this Jesus cares. They say he couldn't care less, but Jesus, he couldn't care more. It is Matthew, in his version of the story, 
who simply places this question on the lips of Jesus, why are you so afraid? It is Mark, in his rendering of the story, he shows Jesus stand up and speak two words to creation. Quiet, still, and everything was calm. The rain stopped falling. The wind stopped howling. And the waves stopped crashing. Everything was completely calm. And then Luke tells us that Jesus turns to his disciples and asks the question, where is your faith? If you were to read Luke chapters 7 and 8, you would quickly discover that those two chapters are inundated with stories about faith. In John, in Luke chapter 7, it is the Roman centurion who has a servant that he values highly who's sick. He heard that Jesus, the miracle worker, was in town, so he thought to himself, the best way to deal with the Jewish rabbi is to send a Jewish delegation. For the Roman centurion understood he was not Jewish. He is a Gentile. So he sent a Jewish delegation to Jesus, and he also sent a few of his friends. By the time they got to Jesus, the Jewish delegation botched the negotiations. They said to Jesus, Jesus, there's a Roman centurion who lives back here, and uh, he deserves to have you come to his house. He's got a servant who's sick, and he values that servant highly, and that servant needs to be healed. The reason you're obligated to go see him, Jesus, is because this man is a friend to the nation of Israel, and he is a friend of the synagogue. In other words, uh, when we did the Together We Build program, he gave the most, most amount of money to that campaign. So we are obligated to listen to him and help him out. So Jesus, he deserves to have you come. When the friends of the Roman centurion heard how the Jewish delegation handled the situation, they ran back to their friend and they told him everything about it. So then the Roman centurion sent a second delegation, some of his own cronies, and they went out to Jesus. They intercepted him before he got to his house and they said, listen, sir, our friend, the Roman centurion, he understands you're not obligated to come. He, he doesn't deserve to have you come into his house, but he knows that you're a man of authority. He's a man of authority. He has a hundred soldiers under his command. He tells this one to go and he goes, this one to come and he comes. He knows that all you have to do is say the word and his servant will be healed. And upon hearing that, Jesus turns to the crowd that is predominantly a Jewish crowd. And Jesus says, I have not found such great faith even in all of Israel. From that story, it would appear to me that faith is trusting that Jesus can fix it, even though you don't deserve it. By the time the second delegation got back to the house of the Roman centurion, that servant had been healed. Jesus immediately went on to the village called Nain. He walked into Nain and bumped into a funeral procession. And Jesus, the holy rabbi, touched the coffin. And when he touched the coffin, the funeral procession stopped. Because the holy rabbi had now touched death. Jesus spoke to that dead corpse. It was a little boy. He said, little boy, get up. And the little boy sat up and began to have a conversation with Jesus. Jesus scooped him out of that wooden coffin, turned and gave him to his grieving mother. Everybody in the crowd went crazy because they knew that Jesus had done something miraculous. 
For Jesus is the author of life, and every time he bumps into death, death dies. Following that, Jesus is approached by some friends of John the Baptist. For quite some time, John the Baptist had been incarcerated, not because he did anything wrong, but because he did everything right. He adamantly spoke against the illicit affair that King Herod was having with uh, Philip's wife. Philip was the brother of Herod, and Herod was having an illicit affair with Herodias. And John the Baptist was not quiet about it. He, would, he was very vocal about how this was an abomination unto the Lord. In order to silence him, King Herod threw John the Baptist into prison. And that was okay for John the Baptist because he thought to himself, it won't be very long and Jesus will come and set me free. Why? Because John the Baptist knew that the first sermon Jesus ever preached, recorded in Luke chapter 4, Jesus speaks from the scroll of Isaiah, and he says that he came to set the captive free. John the Baptist is a captive, and it won't be long before he'll be set free. But John waits, and he waits, and the days give way to weeks, and the weeks give way to months. And Jesus hasn't come over the horizon, and John the Baptist still in prison. He got some of his friends, his disciples together. He said, go find Jesus and ask him this question. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect somebody else? Do you hear the fear, the doubt, the disappointment in the voice of John the Baptist? He's asking Jesus, are you the one? We put all of our eggs in your Messiah basket. Are you the one? Or should we expect somebody else? Have we missed the boat entirely? You said you would come to set the captive free, but here I am still in prison. And Jesus said to the friends of John the Baptist, you tell him all that you hear me saying. You tell him all the things you see me doing. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. And as the friends were leaving, Jesus said to the crowd that day, there is no one greater born of a woman than John the Baptist. In that story, Luke is telling us something about faith. Faith is trusting Jesus even when you don't see it. Faith is trusting that Jesus is still in control even, even when you can't connect the dots. That Jesus still has everything under control even when you are still suffering from being a captive. It's not set free. At the end of Luke chapter 7, Jesus goes into the home of Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee threw a party for Jesus. He invited some of his rabbi friends. In the course of the meal, there was a, a woman who crashed the party. She was uninvited. She wasn't on the guest list. She came and stood behind Jesus as he was reclining at the table and with her tears, her liquid love, they just streamed down her cheeks and she made the feet of Jesus wet. And then with her hair, she dried them. And then this woman, this woman of ill repute, this woman of the night, a harlot, a, a woman from the red light district, she took a tool of her trade, an alabaster jar of perfume. She broke the flask, poured all of its contents on the feet of Jesus. Simon the Pharisee thought to himself, if this man really were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him, and she is a sinner. And Jesus, knowing the thoughts of Simon, 
said, Simon, uh, I want to tell you a story. There were two people who owed money to the same lender. One owed 50 denarii, the other 500. 50 denarii is a debt that could be paid off. 500 denarii is a debt that was too extravagant. But Jesus in his story said that neither of them could pay back the debt. So the money lender canceled their debt. He asked Simon the Pharisee, which one would love the lender more? Simon thought for a moment and said, I suppose the one who had the greater debt canceled. Jesus said, do you see this woman? No, Simon, do you really? Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not greet me with a holy kiss. But this woman has not stopped kissing my feet from the moment she walked in. And you, you, uh, you did not provide any olive oil for me to place on my head. But this woman has broken a flask of alabaster jar of perfume and poured it on my feet. Oh, you did not greet me in your house. But this woman, she has not stopped showing her dependency and affection upon me. Then turning to the woman, Jesus said to her, Daughter, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Faith in Jesus is what enables us to be forgiven of sin. Her perfume, her performance, that's not what saved her. It was her faith, her explicit faith and dependency that Jesus can save her. That is what saved her. You look throughout Luke chapter 7 and it's story after story after story after story, pearl after pearl after pearl after pearl. And it's a beautiful necklace of faith. And Jesus is showing us what faith looks like. You flip over to Luke chapter 8 and Jesus tells one of those well-spun stories about the parable of the sower, that the word of God is scattered like a farmer scatters seed. And sometimes the seed falls on the hard path and other times it falls on rocky soil, still other times on thorny soil. But eventually, sometimes the word of God falls on good soil. That good soil hears the word, retains it, and produces a bumper crop. The story is not about soil. The story is about persons. There are individuals who hear God's word. And they have to do something with it. The verses that precede our passage, Jesus just simply says, those who are in my family are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. See, faith is not just a noun. Faith is a verb. Faith is something that you not, not only believe, but it's something that you do, that you hear God's word and you put it into practice. Now come back to our story. When Jesus asked the disciples, where is your faith? This faith that I've been talking about and teaching about and, and personifying, this faith that you've seen in the Roman centurion, this, this faith that was granted to the family in the village of Nain, this faith that, that John the Baptist has, even when he can't see his outcome, this faith of the woman of the night who comes and anoints, this faith that must be demonstrated, where is your faith? He turns to the disciples and he says, in this moment, in this moment when you need to have faith personified, you are petrified. Where is your faith? Friend, faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is the presence of trust. Faith is trusting God even when you can't see the outcome. 
Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is the presence of trust. Trust in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. It is Warren Wiersbe who repeatedly wrote, do not doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the marvelous light. What he meant by that was that the truth that God gives to you when the sun is shining is still true even when the storm clouds come over the horizon. If it's true in the good times, it's got to also be true in the bad times. So faith is clinging to Christ. Faith is trusting the Lord. Faith is, is believing upon him even when you cannot see the outcome, see how it's going to end up. Faith is not the absence of fear, but faith is the presence of trust. Now, undoubtedly, you've heard this story. You have probably um, heard many sermons from this story. And many times, the punchline goes something like this. If you just trust Jesus, he'll calm all the storms of your life. If you just trust Jesus... He will stand up in the midst of your storm and say, quiet still, and everything will be calm. You just have to trust Jesus. The problem with that principle is that's a promise that's nowhere taught in this story. Just because you have trust doesn't necessarily mean that all the storms will subside. Some of you understand this to be true. You trust Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yet the storm still rages. So if that's not the truth of the story, what is the truth of this story? I think that Luke gives us this story to tell us that Jesus is the Messiah who will never abandon you, but he will accompany you even in the storm. He will accompany you with his peace. He will accompany you with his power. It is the Apostle Paul who says, do not be anxious about anything, but through prayer and supplication, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul writes in the letter to the Romans, that I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus will always accompany you with his peace and his power. He has the ability to calm all storms, but he's not obligated to do it. Yet even if he doesn't calm the storm, we still trust in him because he is the master of the boat. And Jesus will never abandon you, my friend, but he will always accompany you. Several years ago, a friend of mine preached this passage and he urged the congregation, be like Jesus. When the storm is raging, just take a nap. Of course, for him, nap was an acrostic for never anxious presence. When the storm is raging, just have a never anxious presence. Not because of who you are, but because of who's in your boat. Not because of who you are, but because of Jesus. Not because of what you can do, but because of what Jesus can do. You've got Jesus, and if you've got Jesus in your boat, if you've got Jesus in your life, that's all that you need. Even a sleeping Jesus is sufficient. So you, my friend, just take a nap. Have a never anxious presence. Maybe you've heard of Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was 
a prominent lawyer who lived in Chicago, Illinois in the 19th century. He and his wife, Anna, had four daughters. They had a lot of money, not just because of uh, his law practice, but also because of his real estate investments. But the Chicago fire of 1871 nearly destroyed all of his assets. It took him a couple of years to rebuild. Two years later, he thought to himself, it'd be a good idea for me to take the family on a vacation. And he wanted to splurge. So he made arrangements to take Anna and their four daughters across the pond to London, England, to vacation in the fall in England. Right before they're about to board the ship, a business transaction detained Horatio. He said to his wife, please, you go ahead. I will catch the next ship and I'll be right there, right behind you. Don't worry about it. On the evening of November the 22nd, 1873, the unthinkable happened. The sailing vessel that was carrying Anna Spafford and their four daughters was struck by another ship right before they made it to London, England. All the survivors were retrieved. They were taken to London. And Anna Spafford sent a two-word telegram back to her husband Horatio, who was still in the United States of America. The two-word telegram simply said, saved alone. When Horatio received this, he was grief-stricken. He boarded the next ship in order to go and be with his wife, Anna. And as he was traveling across the Atlantic Ocean, when they got to the place where the wreckage took place, the captain sent word to Horatio saying, right here, your four daughters are entombed in the frigid waters beneath. Horatio went out on his balcony and he stared into the deep blue sea. He prayed, he, he cried, he grieved. He turned around and walked back into his cabin. And that's when he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. The only way Horatio Spafford could take a nap in the midst of his storm is because he had a never-anxious presence because his faith was squarely placed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, this morning I came to tell you that it may not be that Jesus will keep you from the storm, but he most certainly will keep you through the 
the storm. He may not keep you from the cancer, but he'll keep you through the cancer. He may not keep you from unemployment, but he'll keep you through unemployment. He may not keep you from COVID-19, but he'll keep you through COVID-19. He may not keep you from the death of your child, but he'll keep you through the death of your child. Oh, this morning, I just came to tell you that Jesus will never abandon you. He will always accompany you, even when the storm rages. And in our story, it is the disciples who look at each other and ask the question, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this Jesus that we've been following? Who is this Jesus that we call Messiah? Who is this man? For even the winds and the waves obey him. The question the disciples ask is a question that I ask to you today. It's a question that must be asked. It's a question that must be answered. Who is this Jesus? It is John who says, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's the Apostle Peter who says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the Roman centurion at the crucifixion who declares, surely this man was the Son of God. It is the Apostle Paul who will say, he is the image of the invisible God. It is John, the beloved disciple, who will simply declare, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Friend, who is this Jesus? This Jesus to me, he's the God-man. He's fully God and fully man. He has the power to calm all storms. He's not obligated to do it, but he has the capability to calm all storms. And this Jesus never abandons you. He always accompanies you. This Jesus is my Christ. This Jesus is my Messiah. This Jesus is my Lord. This Jesus is the Christ of my chaos. This Jesus is the Messiah of my mess. This Jesus is the Lord of my laylips. This Jesus is my friend. This Jesus is my Redeemer. This Jesus is my Savior. This Jesus is my Lord. This Jesus is the one who gets me up in the morning. This Jesus is the one that puts air in my lungs. This Jesus is the one that I worship and praise. This is my Jesus. And this morning I wonder, who is this Jesus to you? For my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. It's in the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, and I need no other plea. It is in enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I don't know about you, friend, but I'm just glad that Jesus is in my boat. I'm glad that Jesus is in my life. Give me a sleeping Jesus. That's okay. That's better than no Jesus at all. Jesus will always accompany you. He will never abandon you in these days or any day. To God be the glory. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of response and invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.